Good morning, church family. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 737. As always, I'd like to begin in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider the text. Let's pray. Our Lord, what a beautiful day you've given us to gather for worship. We thank you for that. We thank you for the sunlight shining through our windows. Lord, thank you for each one that's here today to worship you. And as we now consider this brief passage from the book of Daniel, would you help us to see the importance of holiness and give us a commitment to living holy lives before you? Lord, we ask that your spirit would work during this time, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we began our series through Daniel, and I introduced us to the historical context and the central theme of the book. Now today we're going to look at the central figure of this book, and that is Daniel himself. And I'd like to begin by simply reading through today's text, that's Daniel chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. And then we will discuss it together. In fact, let me start in verse 1. It reads, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, it's another name for Babylon, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. All right, so as part of Nebuchadnezzar's conquest of Judah, he ordered that Judah's best and brightest citizens should be kidnapped and then shipped off to Babylon. This was a strategy that Nebuchadnezzar applied to all of his conquered lands. And the rationale was twofold. First, if you strip the best and brightest out of a conquered land, then that land is much less likely to mount an insurrection later on. You've taken their best people already. But it also raises the prestige of the conqueror. Because now you are not only occupying your enemy's land, 
but you have also captured their best people and, and made them your personal servants. So it served this twofold purpose for Nebuchadnezzar. This is what he was doing here with Judah. And Nebuchadnezzar gave his chief eunuch, a man named Ashpenaz, a profile of exactly who qualified as the best and brightest in Judah. These were the kinds of people he was looking to take back with him. First, he says they had to be members of the royal family and of the nobility. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted Judah's up-and-coming leaders, okay, especially those with regal blood in their veins. Next, it says he wanted youths without blemish and of good appearance. So fully grown adults would pose a security risk in Babylon. But if you find young people who will be very shaken by the move and are more prone to, um, to brainwashing, really, uh, that would be safer. So he wanted to find members of the royal family and nobility, but they had to be young people, not mature adults. He said they also had to be physically attractive youths because they were going to work in Nebuchadnezzar's palace, and only beautiful people get to work there. Well, then third, he said they had to be skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning. That all means he wanted really smart people in his palace. And then finally, they had to be competent to stand in the king's palace. That means they had to be um, men of social grace. You don't want people walking around the palace who are clumsy and have bad manners and all of that. Okay, so here's the profile of the kind of people that Nebuchadnezzar wanted to ship back home. But we also notice the values of Babylon in this list. Youth, beauty, intelligence, status, social grace... These are the, the traits that meant the most in Babylon, which makes them sound a lot like modern America. We see the purpose for this in uh, the second part of verse 4. It said, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to capture the best and brightest, send them back to Babylon in order to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans, that is, the Babylonians. So Babylon was one of the great learning centers of the ancient world. Okay, their literature included uh, legal and religious documents. It included works of science and math. It included economic and historical records. So Nebuchadnezzar wanted to capture the best people of Judah, and he wanted them to become fluent in this great array of literature in Babylon. But then he also wanted them to learn the language of Babylon. That language was very different from the language of Judah. They spoke Hebrew. In Babylon, they spoke a form of Akkadian. And their written language was called cuneiform. It was a very difficult writing style consisting of a bunch of wedge-shaped characters. You would stamp those wedges into clay tablets or etch them into stone. But what he is doing here is trying to make the Judean captives fit for service in the palace. They will know the culture of Babylon. They will know its traditions. They'll be able to speak its language. Verse 5 shows us the program for instruction. First, it says these Judean youths would receive the best food that the empire had to offer. 
They would even receive wine and meat from Nebuchadnezzar's own table. They would also receive three years of intensive training by the best private tutors. They would train the Judean captives in the literature and the language of Babylon. Then at the end of those three years, they would be presented to Nebuchadnezzar. If they were found satisfactory, they would become his servants in the palace. And who knows what would happen to them if he found them unsatisfactory. Verse 6 shows us the participants in Nebuchadnezzar's program. First was Daniel, the, the man whose name this book bears. Daniel was only about 15 years old at the time that he was kidnapped and sent off to Babylon. And three of Daniel's friends were also shipped off, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But upon arrival in Babylon, each of these young men was given a new name. So Daniel was renamed Belshazzar. Now the the word Bel is just another name for Marduk, the chief god of the Babylonians. And we talked about Marduk last time. The name Belshazzar literally is a prayer to Marduk. It says, Marduk, protect his life. And then Hananiah was renamed Shadrach. That's a name that derives from the Babylonian moon god. And then Mishael was renamed Meshach. This is another name that derives from their moon god. Then Azariah was renamed Abednego, which derives from another Babylonian god named Nebo. So you see they're being stripped of their Hebrew identities, and they are being given new Babylonian names. This is going to help with the assimilation process. But friends, understand exactly what is happening here. We have four teenage boys, along with many others, being taken from their homeland. They've been resettled into a foreign land where they don't even know the language, where they've been stripped of their birth names and given foreign names, and where they are now going to be groomed for service in the palace of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now try to put yourself in their place for just a moment. What would the psychological impact of this displacement be on you? Probably fear, sadness, um, confusion, anger, probably all of these things. Daniel and his friends must have felt these things too. This was an incredibly traumatic experience, especially for someone still in their teenage years. But as we continue reading, we find that there is one thing that has not been shaken. And that is Daniel's absolute devotion to the God of heaven. So despite all that Daniel and his friends have been through, the the displacement, the stripping of their identities, this new uh, intensive plan to to, uh, train them in the ways of Babylon... As jarring as that was, it has not shaken Daniel's faith. So look at the first part of verse 8. 
It says, but, in other words, in spite of all that he's just been through, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. This describes Daniel. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's wine and meat. That word defile is used 11 times in the Old Testament scriptures. And each time it refers to becoming morally or ceremonially unclean. So Daniel resolved in his heart that he would not be made unclean by the pagan king. So Daniel may have been traumatized by circumstances, but his faith in God is clearly standing firm. And equally important, his moral vision is remaining crystal clear. And as Daniel conducted a moral assessment of his new situation, here's what he concluded. He concluded that there was nothing defiling about living among the Babylonians. Nothing even defiling about serving the king of Babylon in his court. There was nothing defiling about learning the language and literature of the Babylonians. It wasn't defiling for him to answer to a Babylonian name. But Daniel determined that it would be defiling to adopt the Babylonian lifestyle. Okay? It would be defiling to adopt the Babylonian lifestyle. And that's why, Nebuch- that's why Daniel would not put Nebuchadnezzar's food into his body. That would be defiling. Why? Well, for starters, much of the king's meat was directly forbidden in the law of Moses, which was part of Israel's covenant with God. Israel's laws forbade things like pork and horse meat. Babylon didn't have such laws. For Daniel to eat the king's meat, he would be violating the covenant that Israel had made with God. But beyond that, even the meat that was permissible to eat had likely been prepared in an unacceptable manner. So, for example, the law of Moses said that you had to drain the blood out of an animal before you could cook it and present it. But Babylon didn't have such a law. So again, for Daniel to partake of the king's meat, he would have to violate the terms of the covenant that his nation, Israel, had with God. Furthermore, Nebuchadnezzar's meat was consecrated to false gods. So eating that meat could have indirectly associated Daniel with idolatry, which would have been another sin. And then if all that wasn't enough, a daily feast of wine and meat was an over-the-top luxury that only the most self-indulgent would find acceptable. 
but surely not a faithful Jew. So in short, the king's food embodied a godless value system, which was completely at odds with the value system of a God-fearing Jew. If Daniel had accepted the king's food, then he would have been taking his first steps on a journey toward complete assimilation into Babylonian culture and a complete rejection of the covenant that he and his nation had with God. Daniel was not willing to do that. Daniel resolved in his heart that he would not even take the first step down that road. He would live among the Babylonians. He would learn their ways. He would serve in the court of their king. But he would not have any part in the sinful way of life of the Babylonians. See, the true and living God was just far too precious to him. In making this commitment, Daniel was applying a biblical teaching that we call personal separation. Personal separation. It's a teaching rooted in the nature of God himself. See, friends, the most defining attribute of God is his holiness. Whenever human beings encounter God in the scriptures, they always note his holiness first. And the root idea of holiness is separation. When we say that God is holy, we are saying that God is separate from and above the created order. We're also saying that he is separate from sin, that he is morally perfect. In fact, God is so personally separated from sin that whenever God encounters it, it generates within him a righteous revulsion and even a a settled determination to destroy that sin. See, God is holy. He is separate from all creation and all sin. When God made a covenant with Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, back in Genesis chapter 12. He required Abraham to separate himself from the idolatry and the godless lifestyle that he had lived up to that point. He was called to live a a holy life, a separated life. And then when God gathered the descendants of Abraham together and, and he made of them the nation of Israel, God called that nation to be separate from all the nations around them. The constant refrain that we find in, in the law of the Old Testament is this. God says, you will be holy for I am holy. That means You, my covenant people, shall distinguish yourself from all the nations around you in this. You will be morally pure. You will not mix with idolatry or immorality. You will be a set-apart people. Now, Daniel rightly understood that the imperative of holiness does not require our complete withdrawal from ungodly people. The Apostle Paul writes, for that we'd have to go out of the world. No, it's perfectly permissible for us to enter the marketplace for buying and selling. We can work in the employ 
of ungodly men. We can locate our dwellings in the midst of people who do not love God. We can enter the world to do charitable deeds. We can hold public office, can perform civic duties, and on and on the list goes. But at the same time that we are doing all of these things, we must never compromise on the moral demands of discipleship. This is core to the life of faith. In all that we do, we must be holy as God is holy. Friends, this is as true for the church today as it was for Israel of old. Just listen to all of the New Testament texts which speak of this. There's Romans 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Ephesians 5, verses 10 and 11. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the sinful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 21 and 22. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained. By the world. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. For that which is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You see, God's people in all ages are called to be lovers of holiness. And they are called to develop their powers of discernment so that they can distinguish good from evil and then live by the good. They are called to be in this world, but not of the world. Yes, to live among the people of the world, but not to embrace the intellectual and moral systems of the world. And as Daniel assessed his own situation, he, deserved, he determined that he could live in Babylon, he could serve in the king's court with a clear conscience, but he could not put the king's wine and meat into his body. That was a line he could not cross because then he would be a Babylonian in his lifestyle. To consume that meat, he would have to violate the terms of the covenant that he and his nation had made with God. He would have to embrace the ideas and the values and the gods of Babylon. And so Daniel said no. He resolved in his heart that he would not file himself. Now, my friends, do you understand the courage necessary to take such a stand? To be a teenage boy, but to stand before the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, 
and to say to that man, I will not eat your food because your food would defile me. Your food would make me unclean. That is courage. This could have meant life in prison for Daniel to personally offend the world's most powerful man. It even could have meant torture and death. Think of all the ways that Daniel could have rationalized consuming that food. He could have said, look, God has forsaken me. Isn't that obvious? I mean, he's ripped me out of my homeland, taken me from my friends and family. He's thrown me into the capital city of a pagan empire. God doesn't care about me anymore. Why should I care about God? He could have rationalized taking that food and drink. Or if Daniel had been an American Christian, he might have said something like, you know, I don't want to seem judgmental. And if I'm sitting at this lunch table and everybody around me is eating the king's meat and wine and I'm not, everybody's going to think that I, that I think I'm better than them. They're going to call me judgmental, holier than thou. I, I don't want that. So personally, I'll believe that this food is wrong, but outwardly I'm still going to eat it so that I can keep a good relationship with these guys, not get a reputation as a judgmental sort, maybe even maintain evangelistic opportunities, really put a spiritual spin on it. Apparently, none of these thoughts crossed Daniel's mind. His concern was being faithful to God in every aspect of life, and he knew the moral demands placed upon the Israelites. And he had made that covenant with God. He was part of a nation covenanted with God, and personally, he was devoted to God. He knew what God's law said. He knew what God demanded from his people. And so Daniel determined that he would be faithful to God in every aspect of life, and then simply let the chips fall where they may. Imprisonment, torture, death, the scorn of his peers, ostracism from the group, whatever the consequences might be, Daniel said, so be it. Those things are secondary. What is primary is being holy as God is holy. Daniel sets before us here an example that we should follow. Now, friends, you and I are not captives, but we are living in Babylon, Make no mistake about that. The values of modern America are indistinguishable from the values of Babylon. Youth, beauty, power, riches, status, social grace, gratuitous violence, sexual license, all of it is true of America as it was for Babylon. And so even as you and I go on working here and raising our children here and serving in a local church here, we must also apply this timeless principle of personal separation, being in this world, but not of this world. As the people of God in the New Testament era, we must learn to be lovers of holiness 
to long more than anything else to reflect the character of the one who redeemed us, to be like God, to be holy as he is holy. We must learn to desire not to be conformed to the spirit of our age. And to do this in every department of life. So not allowing there to be one little part in which we are not conformed to the will of God. Believing that God's will is best. And that our complete devotion is exactly what God deserves from us. We're also called to cultivate our own powers of discernment so we can distinguish the holy from the profane, which is only done through radical Christian commitment. Commitment to massive intake of Scripture, which reveals to us the will of God, and and pondering the words of Scripture, considering how they apply to our lives in this age of being deeply devoted to a local church and receiving the positive peer pressure from that believing community. Trying to limit clearly harmful influences from our lives, lest our hearts be carried away. We also need to develop wills of iron so that we can say like Daniel, I will be faithful to my calling no matter what the personal consequences might be. I will not forsake God in order to please school administrators or an overbearing employer or government bureaucrats or whatever the case might be. I will not compromise on faithfulness to God in order to stay with the in crowd in order to avoid the scorn of my peers. No, I will be faithful to God in all circumstances, letting the chips fall where they may. That's what God calls me to do. We must say, I will not yield to my own sinful impulses, realizing that the problem isn't just on the outside, the problem's also on the inside. Saying no to our own base impulses. You know, sometimes this will be really easy. We know that murder and adultery and theft are wrong. They do not conform to the character or will of God. But you know, other times it's going to be much more difficult. Is it immediately obvious to us that eating Nebuchadnezzar's food would be an immorality? Not on the surface. That's the kind of an issue where you really have to ponder. You have to remember, okay, what does the law of God say? What what were the terms of the covenant that Israel made with God? What associations would this um, tie me up with? That's how the conclusion was reached by Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar's food. It took some thought on his part. That's what we're called to be, a thinking people. You don't just mentally check out when you become a Christian. No, you engage your brain and you, and you absorb the scriptures and then you figure out how it applies to every area of life and society. Christian people are called to be a thinking people. And we look at every choice that we must make and we are asking ourselves, is this glorifying to God? Will this be glorifying to God if I do this? What associations will this tie me in with? 
If I take the first steps down this road, where will I be 10 years from now? Not just tomorrow. See, we engage our brain and we try to act in wisdom. Our commitment should be to be like Daniel, a man who resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself. Even better, our resolve should be that we will be like Christ. Christ is the ultimate example here. They referred to Christ as the friend of tax collectors and sinners. So he was the kind of guy, the kind of man who who forged relationships with all sorts around him. He particularly went after the marginalized in society, the most hated people. He was the friend of tax collectors and sinners, and yet he's also the man who never once committed a sin himself. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. He was engaged with the world, but he was personally separated from all ungodliness. We call ourselves Christians. We are followers of Christ. We bow before him as Lord and we follow his example. So friends, let us desire to be like Christ. Let us pray now for God's help. Lord, you've given us a great example here with Daniel. And I pray that you would help all of us to learn from that example Lord, here we see his, his firm resolve. We see his commitment to holiness, his love for you. We see him engaging his, his mind to look about him and say, what is acceptable and what is not acceptable for someone who claims to be a follower of, of the Lord? Lord, sometimes it may be easy, but sometimes it may be hard. Lord, it must have been hard for Daniel as he considered what he should do about King Nebuchadnezzar's food. But help us, Lord, to have a sensitivity about these things, to desire so, uh, so much to be holy that we will look at every department of our lives, we will look at every potential choice that we can make, and we will run it through the grid of what would be pleasing to you according to your word, what would bring glory to you, What would make us look like you? What would take us away from you? What might take us the first few steps down a long road that would take us far from you in the end? Lord, we want to be a a separate and distinct people, a holy people. Because we know from your word that those are the kind of people that you are delighted to use in this world. Those are the people you use to spread your fame, to draw new people to faith. And we want to be used by you in these ways. So help us, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.